Matthew 21, 18. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Father, we ask in prayer this morning, believing. We ask You, Lord, to grow us heart, mind, and body. We ask You, Lord, even from this little story, to recognize what is before us, the possibilities, Father, what we, each one of us, individually and as a church family, can actually accomplish for You. Father, we are a people who are in love with Your grace, saved by Your grace, and thankful for Your grace. But we pray and desire that our work would be evident. That we wouldn't just sit around in grace, but we would be motivated by grace to move and act and be and build. To do for Your kingdom, Lord. We pray, Father, for enlightenment this morning, but I pray beyond that. Father, I'm coming before You asking Your Holy Spirit to do something in our hearts today that cannot be done simply through a Bible study. So I've often prayed, I ask You to seed Your Word into our hearts, but Father, I pray that it will not only be seeded, but it will germinate and grow. That there will be cross-pollination. That we will be motivating one another. Even more as we see the day approaching. That we will not walk out of here saying, well, that was interesting. But instead we'd walk out of here saying, Lord, what can I do? I'm asking You, Father, to activate our faith in Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, only You can do this. So we invite You to be our teacher this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Stepped out just a moment ago and it is beautiful outside. The sky is blue and the sun is shining and it's just, wow, what a day to be outside. Still a little chilly, but it does feel like spring, though we're in February right now. But as Carol mentioned, as long as the pitchers and catchers have shown up, we're in good shape, right? Alright, we can anticipate more days of sunshine and more blue sky. And it was like that for Jesus. By the time we get to Matthew 21, we're in the month of Nisan now, on the Hebrew calendar. It's the March-April time frame. Springtime. Springtime in Israel is glorious. Surprisingly so. Flowers that dot the field, the green. It's, it's an amazing and a beautiful and a wonderful time. And this was the time that Jesus and the apostles went up to Jerusalem for Passover. Normally we anticipate, highly anticipate spring. I don't know what Jesus' heart was like as winter was closing out and spring was opening up. His anticipation would have been very different than ours. Because He was not looking forward to more sunshine, longer days. He was looking forward to the cross. And as He came down to or up to Jerusalem for that last Passover, this was firmly on His mind. We talked about last week how He came up over the Mount of Olives and down the other side. And He would do that every day going into the city. Not a triumphal entry. That would have been on Sunday of the week. But every day the rest of the week, He would finish the day by heading back up over the Mount of Olives and down to the other side to Bethany, where His friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. Probably went there as a solace from the intensity of the city of Jerusalem. I can just see Jesus when they got to the peak of the hill looking back over Jerusalem and 
They're just letting a sigh of relief. One more day. One more day. And as they headed down that backside of the slope of the Mount of Olives, seeing Mary and Martha's house, maybe Lazarus standing by the door, I can't help but feel like it was a place of refuge. Very dear to Jesus. A place of comfort. Every evening they would wind their way back down the Mount of Olives. Every morning they would wind their way up to the top and over again. And on this particular day, Jesus notices a fig tree. Now that shouldn't be surprising. There were fig trees all over the countryside of Israel. They dotted the countryside. And they would have, at this point, been filled with large, leafy trees. In fact, the the city Bethphage, or the village Bethphage, which was right beside Bethany, Bethphage literally means the house of unripe figs. Now that's significant because of how a fig tree grows. A fig tree belongs to the ficus genus of trees. They were a staple food. Figs were of the Hebrew diet, still are today. And they were a staple both early and late in the fruit growing process. Now, a couple things just to note about fig trees. We're not talking about a little bush. Fig trees, like ficus trees, can grow as much as 25 feet high. Some of them with widths of 20 to 25 feet. They're unusual among trees because the fruit of the fig tree appears before the leaves. And that's typical. So if you see a fig tree that's that's leafy and full, you can almost bet there's fruit on that tree somewhere. Although it will take a fig tree three years from planting and growth before you begin to see the figs appear. Because it was Passover, it was not harvest time, however. And though the fruit appeared before the leaves and the leaves would already be on the tree, the fruit on the tree was not the summer figs that would be harvested later, not the the rich, brown, tasty figs, but they were hard, little, greenish figs. And yet still edible. I know. I sampled one. It was on a dare. It was up in the Banyas region of of Israel, and we walked by, and I picked one off a tree, and I thought, well, this is interesting. And our our guide said, yeah, that's, that's a fig. I said, this is a fig that doesn't look like any fig I've ever seen. And he said, yeah, you can, you can eat that even right now. And I said, you're kidding me. No, take a bite. And I did. <laughs> they're hard. They're starchy. And I asked, why would anyone want to eat one of these unripe figs? And he said, well, they did it all the time. It was traveling food. Actually, it was food for the poor. Those unripe, starchy, hard figs may not be very tasty, but a couple of things to know about them, they were filling. And if you were hungry, they would fill up the stomach. They weren't bad for you. They did fill the empty space, but they were also free. You could snag one off a tree as you travel from place to place. And as I said, the poor often would use figs, unripe figs, for food. Leviticus 19, verse 9, we see God's prescription for caring for even the least of these among His brothers of Israel. Leviticus 19, verse 9, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Why? So the poor could wander in, and whatever was left over, they could gather for themselves. He also said, Nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And it's interesting to me, it's ironic actually, that the Lord gave that command and Jesus and His apostles would now benefit from that command all these years later. As they traveled down from the Galilee, down to Jerusalem, remember there were no McDonald's, no In-N-Out Burger, no Burger King, thankfully, but there were fig trees everywhere. And you could pick as you went and eat as you went and it filled a hunger. So, one morning, early in the week, probably Tuesday at this point, having apparently missed his croissant in Cafe Judaica, Jesus was hungry. And so he eyes this big leafy fig tree over on the side of the road. He went looking for fruit, but there wasn't a single fig to be found anywhere on the tree. So he cursed it. You ever do that? You open up the fridge, you've got the bowl of cereal ready, the tea is steeping, and all you need is some 2% milk. Where is it? So you go downstairs, as I did this morning, trying not to wake the family, to the downstairs fridge, open it up. Where's the 2%? So I can relate to Jesus here. In fact, I would have been the one going, Cursed tree! 
course, I would have been the one who went back to the tree four or five times, kind of like you do with the refrigerator to see maybe it'll appear. Close the door. No. You know, we all do that. So Jesus curses this tree, and I, I can't imagine what the apostles are thinking. I mean, this to me is one of the funnier moments in Scripture when Jesus points to the tree and says, Curse you, fig tree! May you never produce fruit again! And I can see Peter going, Yeah, I feel the same way, man. I just like that, you know. But John, on the other hand, probably going, That's so... Once again, uncharacteristic of Jesus. We saw the triumphal entry. That was uncharacteristic. And now he's cursing a poor little tree. You know, I get the cleansing of the temple. I understand that that fervor, that passion, that zeal for the house of the Lord. That makes sense. I understand squaring off against the chief priests and the elders. They deserved it. Jesus was standing as the authoritative king when he challenged them time and time again. But cursing a tree? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would Jesus take this unprecedented step of cursing a fig tree? He's up to something here. As He always is, Jesus is intentional. His life was one of intentionality. And from creation to this moment in our lives, Jesus is intentional. What's happening in your life, what's happening in mine, gang, it is intentional. It is purposeful on the part of God. Especially once you've given your life over to Him and you say, I I want to live for you. I want to follow you. I want to be your servant. I believe He takes hold and intentionally takes us through valleys, hills, flat plains to teach us. Jesus is always the teacher. Rabbi Jesus is at work here and He's doing something. Let's see if we can figure it out. Number one, if you want to take some notes on this. The cursing of the fig tree reminds us of the power of God. The power of God. Now it may not seem like a big deal compared to walking on the water or casting out demons or calming storms. Those were big, epic things that Jesus did. Very powerful things. Cursing a fig tree doesn't seem like it fits in those categories. And yet, when was the last time you withered a tree with a word? Now, I've, I've withered lots of house plants. And I've killed a lot of, you know, plants in my home. I'm just, I'm not the green thumb. But I'm talking about speaking to a tree and said, you're done. <laughs> and that tree literally withering away. Mark 11.20 tells us it withered from the roots up. It wasn't just that it started to brown on the leaves and slowly die off. From the inside up, from the unseen place, it began to wither and die. Jesus' overall authority in all created things is apparent here. The fact that He can say this and bring it about from the roots up is absolutely amazing. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by Him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, or even this fig tree, all things have been created through Him and, listen to me, for Him. The tree was there at the king's good pleasure. The tree was there for Jesus' use. Because all things were created for Him and through Him. But I want you to note this, in in recognizing the power of God, this is not the first time the Lord withered a plant. He's done it before. There was a prophet a few hundred years before in Israel. The Lord called to a specific task. An important call on his life. He was a great prophet of the people Israel. And the Lord said, I want you to leave Israel, Jonah, and I want you to go to Assyria. I want you to go all the way into the inner part of Assyria, Assyria there, into Nineveh, and I want you to preach to the people because they are so sin sick right now, I'm going to wipe out the city. Now, prophet Jonah, being an Israelite, would have thought as I might have thought, good, wipe out the city. It's the Assyrians, Lord. There are arch enemies. Why would I want to go preach to them? God says, no, I want you to go and preach them a message of repentance because if they don't repent, I'm going to wipe them out. Preach to those goyim. Goyim being the Hebrew word for Gentile and kind of a slap in the face. Preach to those goyim. No way, you've got to be kidding. So you know what Jonah did. He went to Joppa. He hopped on a boat heading out west across the Great Sea toward a place called Tarshish. 
He didn't caravan up to the north and then back further east to go to Assyria. He went as far away from Assyria as he possibly could. Well, the Lord hadn't forgotten. It's not like you get away from God. And so the Lord sent a great storm. And the boat began to rock and to, and to fall back and forth and literally was shaking apart. And the men on the boat were scared to death. And Jonah said, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. So now he's sinking into this, this guilt, this self-pity. Throw me overboard. It's me. Just do away with me. Well, I need to know that Jonah was thinking that because that is characteristic of him as his story goes on. In the book of Jonah, in fact, if you want to turn over there for a moment, why don't you do that? Jonah chapter 4. So they tossed Jonah over the side and you know what happens. God sent a cruise ship to pick him up. And Jonah was in the hold of that cruise ship, that big fish, was swallowed up and spent the next three luxurious nights on a Mediterranean cruise until the fish erped him up on the shore. And then he had to travel from there three days to get to Nineveh. But he went, having learned his lesson. Finally, he preaches to Nineveh with great success. Unbelievably, a Hebrew prophet goes to to Assyria, brutal, bloody Assyria, but they listen. And the whole city of Nineveh repents, and the Lord relents of His fierce wrath. And you would think at that point that Jonah would be thrilled. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you were gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? You see how twisted Jonah is here? He is mad that these people got saved. He's upset that his message, his prophecy was heard. He's ticked off that there was success, fruit from his journey. He's mad about it. Unbelievable. Well, then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it, verse 5. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. He's still kind of hoping the city's going to, you know, implode. And so the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. (laughs) He's happy about the plant. He could give a rip about the people. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Pathetic. Jonah the pathetic prophet. God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. And the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as many animals? And interestingly, the book of Jonah ends... That's it. What happened to the prophet Jonah? Did he change his mind? Did he repent? Did he say, I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't understand your heart? (laughs) Will we even see Jonah in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. Now, I'm sure you've all heard the story of Jonah and the whale. And Jonah finally going to Nineveh and preaching the great story. But did you know this? That this great prophet of the Lord was successful and was depressed about it. Interesting. I tell you that story because it does have to do with our current story. For not only does the fig tree that Jesus withered remind us of the power of God, it relates the problem of fruitlessness. The problem of fruitlessness. Obviously, the tree was fruitless. But the issue is far more subtle. Because when Jesus looked at the fig tree, by all appearances, it looked fruitful. It was covered in leaves. There should have been fruit on it. 
It looked like a fig tree, but without the fruit. It looked the part, but was unable to produce. I was asked again last week a question that I'm asked every now and then, probably once a year or so, someone comes up and and says this same question. Rick, do you actually think there will be pastors who miss the rapture of the church? I hope not. But that's been asked. Do you think there will be pastors who are left behind? And the person who asked me said, I I just don't even see how that's possible. I'll tell you how it's possible. Leaves without figs. It's totally possible. You can look the part. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we can look the part. God doesn't care about looking the part. He cares about the heart. And what's going on on the inside? That fig tree that withered from the roots up, that no one would have seen that withering happen when it first began. It was a hidden thing, just like the heart. But the apostles all recognized that tree, wiped out, withered, dead by the next day. Listen, Jonah was a prophet of God. Jonah was God's mouthpiece. And when he preached, Nineveh, 120,000 strong, repented. Success, right? Fruit, yes? Yes and no. Because the mouthpiece of God spoke the right words. And there was even some fruit because of the speaking of those words by God's mercy. But Jonah couldn't even enjoy the fruit of his labor. Because his heart was not in it. The fruit was tasteless to Jonah because Jonah's heart was fruitless. The fig tree looked the part but had no figs. Jonah spoke the right words but the fruit was bitter for him. Boy, it's a good thing no one in the church is like that. It's a good thing that among us as Christians, we're all fruitful people. And that the whole of the world, when they look at Christians, know those are the people who really are bearing fruit for God. I am so thankful none of us are like Jonah. It's getting a little thick in here, isn't it? Now listen to me. I say this not in judgment, but in truth. This was Israel's problem. And the picture here of the fig tree not only shows us the power of God or the the problem of fruitlessness, but it repeats to us the prophecy of cursed Israel. The prophecy of cursed Israel. The fig tree in Israel is still a national symbol today. It still is something that you can see on on posters and, and rings and jewelry. It still speaks of the land. Because there are fig trees all over the land, they've returned to the land like the people... There are fig trees everywhere. Big, beautiful trees. Leafy green trees with fruit on them. That Israel's problem, like Jonah's problem, like the problem of this fig tree, and I believe this is part of what Jesus is pointing out to the apostles, is they were a fruitless, unwilling, uncompassionate, self-centered nation. They were more concerned about themselves than they were about the Lord. And with this curse, Jesus reminds us of the prophecy of cursed Israel. Numerous prophets, far before Jesus came, Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel, Hosea, and Isaiah, they all spoke about, they all compared Israel to the fig tree. Let me give you a couple of verses. And by the way, remember this, because it's going to take on even greater significance when we get to Matthew 24. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. With Israel, though there was the early fruit of faithfulness with, with men like Abraham, or Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, the fig tree in Jesus' day was barren. The apostles, had they been sharp, would have been seeing this each day down the mountain and up into Jerusalem. Each day they would have seen how fruitless the nation was. How uncaring. How self-centered. And so when Jesus curses the tree, it was something that shouldn't have surprised anybody as a picture, again, an actual living parable before their very eyes of what was going on in Israel. The leaves were there, but the fruit was not. And Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 8.13, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree. And the leaf will wither. And what I have given them will pass away. So in a very real tangible, physical way, the leaf withered. There was no fruit. 
And Jesus said, there will never be fruit on you again. By the way, when Jesus says, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you, it indicates there had been fruit at one time, but the tree was now fruitless. Cursed Israel. When Jesus cursed the fig tree that day, in a very real way, Israel ceased to produce fruit. For nearly 2,000 years, Israel as a nation withered from the roots up. Cast out among the nations until it miraculously began to blossom again, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. The point is this, the cursing of the fig tree by Jesus was in part symbolic of the cursing of Israel. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when His disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to Him. It's very impressive, the temple that Herod built. The revised second temple. Fantastic. It had been 40 plus years in the building. And they're saying, Jesus, look at this. Man, look at the columns and look at the the power of this. Look at the size of the stones. That Herod somehow is... I mean, it's just amazing. And Jesus said to them, Matthew 24, 2, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And you know what? You can see those stones torn down today. Excavation around the southern end of the Temple Mount reveals the street that Herod built smashed with massive stones that the men of Titus, the commander of Rome, threw off the top of the Temple Mount in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And the fig tree of Israel withered from the roots up. But there's not just prophecy at play here. We see the power of Jesus. We see the problem of this fruitless tree. The very prophecy of Israel. But Jesus now gets down to the nitty gritty. Look at verse 20. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and they asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. This story of the fig tree, this this life parable that Jesus presents, reveals the produce of faith. The produce of faith. Jesus knew the apostles would be curious about the tree. He knew that 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 would grab their attention. And wisely, shrewdly, Jesus draws them and us into a lesson on faith. And here it is. Faithfulness produces fruitfulness. You do not have one without the other. Faithfulness produces fruitfulness. Always, that's just how it works. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which one to choose. I love that about Paul. He was so excited to be home with Jesus that death for him was gain, was better. And yet, he recognized in his life that as long as he lived, every moment he had, every breath that he took, he could be a fruitful worker in the vineyard of the Lord. That God could use him, Paul, to produce fruit. To make good things happen. To build in the kingdom. And that's what true faith in Christ Jesus does. Not just for the missionary Paul, but for every single person who is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. Everyone who says, Jesus, be Lord of my life and lead me. Every one of us. There shouldn't be, listen to me, there shouldn't be a single person sitting in a single church professing Jesus who is not bearing fruit. Because faithfulness produces fruitfulness. James chapter 2, verse 14. James said, what use is it, my brethren? Someone says he has faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? This is tough stuff. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And there's the camp of grace and the camp of works and the argument back and forth. Are you saved by your works or are you saved by grace? Hey, you're saved by grace. But... You are not saved if there are no works because the works prove that you believe in the grace. 
if there are no works, if there's no fruit in your life, if there's no sharing of Jesus, then you've got to ask, do you really believe? If the focus of my life is more on what I can accomplish for me and for my family rather than what I can accomplish for the Lord, I've got to ask the question, do I really believe in Him? Do I buy this stuff? You can't call yourself a follower of Jesus while at the same time bearing no fruit for Him. You're just like the fig tree. You look the part. You show up at church. And by the way, church attendance is not fruit. Loving a brother or a sister on a Sunday morning, that's fruit. Caring for someone, going out of your way, worshiping, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. There is fruit to be had and it's very specific so we can understand what it means. But just showing up, you got leaves. Where are the figs? Where is the fruit? The downside of the fact that faithfulness always produces fruitfulness is this. Fruitlessness withers faithfulness. Fruitlessness withers faithfulness. If I have no fruit in my life, ultimately I will wither in my faith, whatever faith I have. You see people who grow up in their faith immediately. I mean, Jesus talked about them, the seed that's planted, that's thrown onto the road. And it springs up. Woo! Faith in Jesus! But there's no root. And there's no fruit. And it dies quickly, scorched by the sun, by the cares of the world. When Jesus cursed the fig tree that day, even the chance of producing fruit sometime future was taken away from it. No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And again, Mark tells us this cursed tree withered from the root up. You want to know why the faith of some withers from the root? It's because there's no connectedness, no true connectedness to Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And verse 1. Jesus addresses this, and so important is this gang. He addresses this as part of what's called the Thursday night discourse. In that upper room with the apostles, the night before His crucifixion, Jesus includes this teaching. John 15 verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Notice that He said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. I would say, by my understanding, we're talking about people sitting in churches who claim to be in Jesus and have all the leaves, but no fruit. But He says, every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit, which means, (laughs) buckle up. Because even if you're bearing fruit for the Lord, it's going to prune you so you can bear more. You think trees enjoy being pruned? Ah! I worked for six months on that branch! What are you doing? He prunes it. Verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. This, this intimacy, that, that one verse alone, that one phrase, abide in me and I in you, that was one that got seated into my head as a ten-year-old kid. I'll never forget when I first heard that, and it, every time I hear it, it, it just, I get this resonance. Abide in me, Rick, and I in you. I want to be so close that we are just, you don't go anywhere, then I'm not there. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Rather than enjoying the fruit that comes by faith, however, some prefer to hide behind the leaves. You know what's interesting? The very first mention, we talk about this, first mention is significant in the Bible. The first mention of a fig tree in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This blows my mind. Listen to the significance of this. 
they, they, they take these fig leaves, which, by the way, are scratchy and irritating. Not a good idea for loin coverings. <laughs> Banana leaves, maybe. Aloe vera, good choice. But not fig leaves. And yet, when you're in a panic to hide your shame, you put up whatever covering you can come up with. And that's what Adam and Eve did. And it's amazing, what did they cover? They covered their area of fruitfulness. The Lord said, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28 That was the single command of their life. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. How were they to subdue the entire earth? This couple in Eden, by being fruitful. And there is a physical and a sexual thing that's being expressed there. Be fruitful and multiply. Make babies. Raise them up in the same purity with which you're living. But the moment they sinned and recognized their nakedness, they had to cover up. They had to hide behind the leaves. Jonah built himself a shelter and hid underneath it to sulk why? Israel was hiding behind their heritage rather than producing the fruit of faithfulness. What about us? Jesus gives us this command in the Spirit. Be fruitful. Be fruitful. God is not looking for leaves. He's looking for fruit. Jesus does not come up to you, the tree by the road, and see how leafy you are. How covered you are by all the stuff that hides you away from the truth. He's looking for fruit. What does that really mean, Rick? I've heard fruit messages before. Listen to me. This is not one of those vague, hyper-spiritualized things. There are four specific genuses or classifications of fruit that are listed in the New Testament. Four of them. The fruit of the Spirit the fruit of worship, the fruit of the gospel, and the fruit of righteousness. Those four things. Look at this. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. How practical is this? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Are you loving? The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Are you joyful? You know what? I don't see sour listed among the fruit of the Spirit. Or bitter. Those are not tastes that come by the fruit that the Spirit grows in us. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then Paul says this. I never understood this before. He said, against such things there is no law. What does that mean, Paul? Against such things there is no law. This class of fruit is not cultivated religiously. The law has nothing to do with growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The law has nothing to do with producing that. So listen, gang, that list of nine fruits there, you don't grow by doing stuff. It grows only by the power of the Spirit of God in you. How do I get more of the Spirit of God in me? You ask Him. You pray it out. There's nothing more practical a son or daughter of the living God can do than pray. Pray it out. The fruit of the Spirit. The second is the fruit of worship. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Do you have a worshipful, thankful heart? It's pleasing fruit to Jesus. When our voices lift up together, it is pleasing fruit. Now, I'm not just talking about Sunday and Wednesday worship. Although, if you have trouble singing songs of worship, the problem may not be with your vocal cords. It may be with your heart. But the fruit of worship, gang, it it grows in life. We sang, let my life be like a love song. Please don't sing that as a cheesy Valentine's Day radio romance song. Let my life be like a love song. You're saying, Jesus, I want every aspect of who I am and what I have to be used for You. To bring honor to Your name. To be a worship. You know what worship is at its basis, at its most 
basically, it, it, the essence of worship, it is offering. It's offering. And so we offer songs of praise and we offer our hearts, but gang, a life of worship means I am offering what I have. My checkbook, it's yours, Lord. My car, someone needs them, they're yours. My house, it's yours. My relationships, yours. My guitar, yours. <laughs> All that I have, my abilities, yours. My gifts, my talents, my abilities, they are not to build success and security so-called for me. Not if I am a tree in the vineyard of the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of worship, the fruit of the Gospel, number three. And this is huge, gang. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, Paul writes, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, listen, which has come to you. Just as in all the world, it is, all, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as, as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. What is the fruit of the gospel? It is the seeding of Jesus' love into other people's lives. And I talk about this all the time. And I'm just being honest, and I'm not blaming anyone here. But I'm saying collectively as a group, why do we only have two services? Why, are, why isn't it so packed out here that we have no more room and we've got to offer a, a ninth service on Sunday? We should be absolutely infuriating the county right now if we're bearing the fruit of the gospel. Well, Rick, it's just one of those evangelism guilt trips, so I've got to go tell my neighbor, oh, just, my pastor said I've got to tell you about Jesus. You know, and Sunday morning and Wednesday night, so, you know, if you want to come. <laughs> the fruit of the gospel gang is seated in sharing good news and, and, a, and harvesting a life that is sprouted in faith. But do you know, have you experienced the, literally the angelic joy of seeing a friend or family member give their life to Jesus? There is nothing more thrilling than that. To know that somehow God used little you to speak a word and it stirred up and a person was saved. That is awesome. That is the greatest joy I believe that we can have in this life. But you need to understand something about evangelism. No fig tree grows figs alone. You can't plant a single fig tree in your yard and expect figs in three years. It won't work. There's got to be cross-pollination. There has to be at least a second fig tree there. And so the gospel message of our salvation, to to really produce fruit of the gospel, it's got to be accompanied by the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You can't tell someone about Jesus and be a hateful person. It doesn't work. You can't tell someone about Jesus and be dour and sour in the mouth. It doesn't work. The fruit of the Spirit's got to be growing in my life before I can begin to see the gospel. The fruit of worshipful thanksgiving. Do people see how thankful you are for the life you have? Or do they hear you complaining and moaning and whining that you don't have this or that's not an economy is this way? What are they seeing? Because you're not going to be able to throw the seeds of the gospel into a heart if the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of worship are not present in your life. And, number four, the fruit of righteousness needs to be there as well. Paul said in Philippians 1.9, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. What does that mean? It means you love what's right. You love what's good. You love what's pure and true and holy in this life. The right things. And you do not have anything to do with what's wrong in this world. And that should alter our behavior. Because all of us, if we're truly being honest, we have something to do with something that's wrong in this world. 
And the Lord says, I want you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So different that when the world looks at you, they, they just don't get it. You're so different. You're an altered person. But did you catch this, that the fruit of righteousness also comes through Jesus Christ and to the glory of God? I've thought this through all week. I really believe Jesus wants us to grasp this in tangible, practical, applicable life terms. Not some vague, fruity thing. He wants us to walk this out. Righteousness. Righteousness, not as a religious state. It's, It's doing and loving the right thing. The Gospel is not a campaign. It's heard in the beating of a saved heart. It's Peter and John, as we've talked about, not able to keep their mouths shut. They have to tell about Jesus. The fruit of worshipfulness flowing from a life that is just constantly in praise to God, not at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and 7 o'clock on Wednesday night, and that's it. And the fruit of the Spirit is just that. It is of the Spirit because we're a people walking in the Spirit and crying out to the Spirit for more love, more power, as we sang this morning. And I'm saying, gang, all these things are cultivated by Jesus and can only be nurtured in and through a real relationship, not a cheesy religious one, a real relationship with Him. Where you're talking to Him. You're waking, This morning, I woke up talking to Him because I did not want to get out of bed. I don't know if you can tell, I've got a little cold. And bed just was so great this morning. We've got one of those Nova Foam things, you know, we're just kind of... You roll over and it just conforms. Oh. A little down comforter up by my face. And I wake up and the alarm's going, Rick, you got to get dressed and showered and get down to the church. I'm going, five more minutes. <laughs> you know? I just wanted to stay in that place. And I said, Jesus, I need your strength to get out of bed. Just to get my feet on the floor. And I, <laughs> I talked to him all the way into the shower. Jesus, just help. Can you help me get my teeth brushed? Because I'm just not in the mood today. And it's just gotten better and better. I love being here with y'all. This is good. <clears throat> okay, so here's the deal. I go into Anacortes. I go into Oak Harbor. Coffee shops there. I see signs and flyers all the time. Signs for things like self-awareness classes. You know, or color therapy. (laughs) What is that? You know, I I think I'm going to go to a color therapy class just so I can get a kick out of it. I think I'm just going to show up and sit in the back and... (laughs) Pink? Really? Anyway. You see these things, these, these signs and posters all over the place, and especially in this area because people are so wanting to be, desiring of being self-aware in this new age environment. I see these posters talking about developing your inner specialness, you know? And, and I'm joking a bit here, but i got to tell you, it makes me sick. Because I see the same thing going on in the church. I see the same thing in the Christian mindset that says, I show up because of what it does for me. I go to the quest for authentic manhood because I want to be a more authentic man. Gentlemen, if your involvement with the quest for authentic manhood is about making you feel better about you, you are wasting your time. Ladies, if your involvement in some kind of women's study or small group gathering is more about a spiritual sense of yourself you are wasting your time and fellowship if our worship our studies our teachings our small group our prayer everything we do if it doesn't evoke cross-pollination and save lives we are wasting God's time we're not bearing fruit we're just producing leaves and the Lord is calling us to more than that He is calling us to lives that that bend over backwards to present the gospel of truth and save a dying, withering world. Enough leaves already. You know, enough of us being Christians who are concerned about our own spirituality instead of concerned about the lost in this world. Guess what? If you're focused on the things of God, you're going to grow spiritually. If your heart is after the Lord, you're going to grow internally. You're going to become better 
That's all going to happen. But that's not the purpose for us living these Christian lives. It's not so that we can, you know, achieve, you know, what is it, Maslow who did self-actualization? What a stupid word. I'm actualized. Actually, you're just dumb, you know? (laughs) Jesus said in John 15, verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Now listen, because he repeats what he said at the dying fig tree there. He says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And this is not about the Lexus. (laughs) Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. What do you mean, Lord? I mean, if you're walking in my will... If I'm abiding in you and you and me and we are mono e mono together walking this road, guess what? Your prayers are going to be God-centered, God-focused prayers and it's going to happen for you. It's not about some miraculous tossing a mountain into a sea to make yourself look like an impressive person. But Jesus uses that example saying, you have no idea what you can do if you are walking with me. If you are tied to me, if you are connected into the fruitfulness that flows out of me. He even said, the things you see me doing, you're going to do greater than that. And then he says this, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. In the same way a fig tree is proven to be a fig tree because there are figs on it, so a disciple is proven to be a disciple by tangible visible, bona fide fruit that you should be able to measure. And Jesus said in verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Are you? Am I? Are we to be a fellowship abiding in His love, bearing fruit for the kingdom, a fruit that glorifies the Father? I believe this is the message of the fig tree. And so, Jesus, we pray for conviction. Lord, I think about the other parable you told about the fig tree that was not producing fruit. And for three years it had not produced fruit. And the landowner said, tear it out. And Jesus, as the servant, said, let me dig around it a little bit more. Fertilize it. And perhaps in a year it will grow fruit. Well, Lord, I pray that You will dig around in our lives and that You will fertilize. And Father, I pray, Jesus, I'm asking You to prune us so that we will bear fruit for You. And we will not just pay lip service to our faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.